Hi, this is David Wilcox, and you're listening to episode two of Better Late Than Never. So so I wanted to do a series on Smedley Butler, specifically his War is a Racket book. It's a short book and a short it's a short book and a speech that he made. And he's um his writing is very very easy for the average person to understand. If you've never read anything by Lysander Spooner. His is a little more complicated. It's kind of old-timey, and he was very eloquent with how he wrote. But uh, Smedley Butler's is um, straight, very straightforward. So a little bit about his background. He was born, birth name, Smedley Darlington Butler. He was born in Westchester, Pennsylvania, July 30th, 1881. He married Ethel C. Peters of Philadelphia, June 30th, 1905. He was awarded two Congressional Medals of Honor. And if you watch those two videos that I uh, posted links to in my first episode called um, Introduction and Acknowledgements, there's information in there about what the real occult meaning of the Medal of Honor actually is. So, moving on, he got his first Medal of Honor for the capture of Veracruz, Mexico in 1914. And his second one was for the capture of Fort Riviera, Haiti in 1917. He won a Distinguished Service Medal in 1919. He, his uh, rank he achieved in the United States Marine Corps was Major General. He retired October 1st, 1931. He was on leave of absence to act as Director of Department of Safety for the City of Philadelphia in 1932. He was a lecturer throughout the 1930s. He was a Republican candidate for Senate in 1932. And he died at the Naval Hospital at Philadelphia June 21, 1940. So let's get started with the book. Chapter 1. War is a Racket. War is a racket. It always has been. It is possibly the oldest, easily the most profitable, surely the most vicious. It is the only one international in scope. It is the only one in which the profits are measured, the profits are reckoned in dollars and the losses in lives. A racket is best described, I believe, as something that is not what it seems to the majority of the people. Only a small inside group knows what it is about. So he's referring to esoteric versus exoteric a little bit there. It is conducted for the benefit of the very few at the expense of the very many. Out of war, a few people make huge fortunes. In the World War, a mere handful, he's talking about World War One. we're talking about World War One. he's writing in the years between the end of World War One and the beginning of World War Two. So moving on. In the World War, a mere handful garnered the profits of the conflict. At least 21,000 new millionaires and billionaires were made in the United States during the World War. That many admitted their huge blood gains in their income tax returns. How many other war millionaires falsified their tax returns, no one knows. How many of these war millionaires shouldered a rifle? How many of them dug a trench? How many of them knew what it meant to go hungry in a rat-infested dugout? How many of them spent sleepless, frightened nights ducking shells and shrapnel 
and machine gun bullets? How many of them parried a bayonet thrust of an enemy? How many of them were wounded or killed in battle? Out of war, nations acquire additional territory if they are victorious. They just take it. This newly acquired territory promptly is exploited by the few, the self-same few who wrung dollars out of blood in the war. The general public shoulders the bill. And what is this bill? This bill renders a horrible accounting. Newly placed gravestones, mangled bodies, shattered minds, broken hearts and homes, economic instability, depression and all its in all its attendant miseries, backbreaking taxation for generations and generations. For a great many years as a soldier, I had a suspicion that war was a racket. Not until I retired to civil life did I fully realize it. Now that I see the international war clouds gathering as they are today, I must face it and speak it out. Again, they are choosing sides. France and Russia met and agreed to stand side by side. Italy and Austria hurried to make a similar agreement. Poland and Germany cast sheep's eyes at each other, forgetting for the nonce of one unique occasion their dispute over the Polish corridor. And now I just want to point out, remember that this is the years after World War I, and the stage is being set for the Second World War during the time he's writing. The assassination of King Alexander of Yugoslavia complicated matters. Yugoslavia and Hungary, long bitter enemies, were almost at each other's throats. Italy was ready to jump in, but France was waiting, so was Czechoslovakia. All of them are looking ahead to war. Not the people, not those who fight and pay and die. Only those who foment wars and remain safely home to profit. There are 40 million men under arms in the world today, and our statesmen and diplomats have the temetry to say that war is not in the making. Hell's bells, are these 40 million men being trained to be dancers? Not in Italy, to be sure. Premier Mussolini knows what they are being trained for. He, at least, is frank enough to speak out. Only the other day, Il Duce in International Conciliation, the publication of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, said, Quote, and above all, fascism, the more it considers and observes the future and development of humanity quite apart from political considerations of the moment, believes neither in the possibility nor the utility of perpetual peace. War alone brings up to its highest tension all human energy and puts the stamp of nobility upon the people who have the courage to meet it. End quote. Undoubtedly, Mussolini means exactly what he says. His well-trained army his great fleet of planes, and even his navy are ready for war, anxious for it, apparently. His recent stand at the side of Hungary and the latter's dispute with Yugoslavia showed that, and the hurried mobilization of his troops on the Austrian border after the assassination of Dolphus showed it too. There are others in Europe, who, too, whose saber-rattling presages war sooner or later. Herr Hitler, with his rearming Germany and his constant demands for more and more arms, is an equal if not greater menace to peace. France only recently increased the term of military service for its youth from a year to 18 months. Yes, all over nations are camping in their arms. The mad dogs of Europe are on the loose. <coughs> in the Orient, the maneuvering is more adroit. Back in 1904, when Russia and Japan fought, we kicked out our old friends, the Russians, and backed Japan. 
Then our very generous international bankers were financing Japan. Now the trend is to poison us against the Japanese. What does the open door policy to China mean to us? Our trade with China is about $90 million a year. Or the Philippine Islands, we have spent about $600 million in the Philippines in 35 years. And we, our blankets, our bank, in parentheses, yes, here, and we, parentheses, our bankers and industrialists and spectators, and have private investments there of less than $200 million. Then to save that China trade of about $90 million, or to protect these private investments of less than $200 million in the Philippines, we would be all stirred up to hate Japan and go to war. A war that might well cost us tens of billions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of lives of Americans, and many more hundreds of thousands of physically maimed and mentally unbalanced men. Of course, for this loss, there would be a compensating profit. Fortunes would be made. Millions and billions of dollars would be piled up by a few. Munitions makers, bankers, shipbuilders, manufacturers, meat packers, speculators, they would all fare well. Yes, they are getting ready for another war. Why shouldn't they? It pays high dividends. But what does it profit the men who are killed? What does it profit their mothers and sisters, their wives and their sweethearts? What does it profit their children? What does it profit anyone except the very few to whom war means huge profits? Yes, and what does it profit the nation? Take our own case. Until 1898, we didn't own a bit of territory outside the mainland of North America. At that time, our national debt was a little more than one, uh, one tr uh, billion or one trillion. Then we became internationally minded. We forgot or shunted aside the advice of the father of our country. We forgot George Washington's warning about entangling alliances. We went to war. We acquired outside territory. At the end of the World War period, as a direct result of our fiddling, in international affairs, our national debt had jumped to over $25 trillion. Our total favorable trade balance during the 25-year period was about $24 trillion. Therefore, on a purely bookkeeping basis, we ran a little behind year. We ran a little behind year for year, and that foreign trade might well have been ours without the wars. It would have been far cheaper, not to say safer, for the average American who pays the bills to stay out of foreign entanglements. For a very few, this racket, like bootlegging, like bootlegging and other underworld rackets, brings fancy profits. But the cost of operations is always transferred to the people who do not profit. Chapter two: Who makes the profits? The World War, rather our brief participation in it, has cost the United States some $52 billion or, or trillion dollars. Figure it out. That means $400 to every American man, woman, and child, and we haven't paid the debt yet. We are paying it, our children will pay it, and our children's children probably still will be paying for the cost of that war. The normal profits of a business concern in the United States are 6 8 10 and sometimes 12 percent but wartime profits ah that is another matter 20 60 100 300 and even 1800 percent the sky is the limit all that traffic will bear uncle sam has the money let's get it 
Of course, it isn't put that crudely in wartime. It is dressed into speeches about patriotism, love of country, and we must all put our shoulders to the wheel. But the profits jump and leap and skyrocket and are safely pocketed. Let's just take a few examples. Take our friends the DuPonts, the powder people. Didn't one of them testify before a Senate committee recently that their powder won the war? Or saved the world for democracy or something? How did they do in the war? They were a patriotic corporation. And I'm going to jump in here. He's basically what he just gave a bunch of a few examples of is Barnum statements. Well, the average earnings of the DuPonts for the period 1910 to 1914 were six million a year. It wasn't much, but the DuPonts managed to get along on it. Now let's look at their average yearly profit during the war years, 1914 to 1918. $58 million a year profit we find, nearly 10 times that of normal times, and the profits of normal times were pretty good, an increase in profits of more than 950%. Take one of our little steel companies that patriotically shunted aside the making of rails and girders and bridges to manufacture war materials. Well, their 1910 to 1914 yearly earnings averaged $6 million. Then came the war, and like loyal citizens, Bethlehem Steel promptly turned to munitions making. Did their profits jump or did they let Uncle Sam in for a bargain? Well, their 1914 to 1918 average was $49 million a year. Or let's take United States Steel. The normal earnings then, the normal earnings during the five year period prior to the war were $105 million a year. Not bad. Then along came the war and up went the profits. The average yearly profit for the period 1914 through 1918 was $240 million. Not bad. Then you have some of the steel and powder earnings. Let's look at something else. A little copper, perhaps. That always does well in war times. And what I forgot to mention before I started reading this is this is an anti-war short book and speech. But um, Smedley Butler was not a pacifist, and neither am I. I understand that there's times when individuals or groups of individuals have to stand up and defend themselves. Okay, so back to the book. Anaconda, for instance. Average yearly earnings during the pre-war years, 1910 to 1914-1910 to 1914- period of uh, Anaconda. Average yearly earnings during the pre-war years, 1910 to 1914, of $10,000,000. During the war years, 1914 to 1918, profits leaped to $34,000,000 per year. Or Utah Copper, average of $5 million per year during the 1910 to 1914 period, jumped to an average of $21,000,000 yearly profits for the war period. And the figures here that Smedley Buller is giving, this is this is uh, the the in between World War One and World War Two years. So these figures would be much larger today. Let's group these five. Let's group these five with three smaller companies. The total yearly average profits of the pre-war period, 1910 to 1914, were 137 million 480,000. Then along came the war. The average yearly profits for this group skyrocketed to 408,300,000.
a little increase in profits of approximately 200%. <clears throat> Does war pay? It paid them, but they aren't the only ones. There are still others. Let's take leather. For the three-year period before the war, the total profits of Central Leather Company were $3,500,000. That was approximately $1,167,000 a year. Well, in 1916, Central Leather returned a profit of $15 million, a small increase of 1,100%. That's all. The General Chemical Company averaged a profit for the three years before the war of a little over 800000 a year. Came the war and profits jumped to $12 million a year, a leap of 1,400%. International Nickel Company and you can't have a war without nickel, showed an increase in profits from a mere average of $4 million a year to $73 million yearly. Not bad. An increase of more than 1,700%. American Sugar Refining Company averaged $2 million a year for the three years before the war. In 1916, a profit, a profit of $6 million was recorded. Listen to Senate document number 259, the 65th Congress, reporting on corporate earnings and government revenues. Considering the profits of 122 meat packers, 153 cotton manufacturers, 299 garment makers, 49 steel plants, and 340 coal producers during the war. Profits under 25% were exceptional. For instance, the coal companies made between 100% and 7,856% on their capital stock during the war. The Chicago Packers doubled and tripled their earnings. And let us not forget the bankers who financed the Great War, which was what they called World War I. If anyone had the cream of the profits, it was the bankers. Being partnerships rather than incorporated organizations, they do not have to report to stockholders, and their profits were as secret as they were immense. How the bankers made their millions and their billions, I do not know, because those little secrets never become public, even before a Senate investigatory body. So, same kind of stuff with that still going on today. All right, so let's go, let's move on. But here, but here's how some of the other patriotic industrialists and speculators chiseled their way into war profits. Take the shoe people. They like war. It brings business with abnormal profits. They made huge profits on sales abroad to our allies, perhaps like the munitions manufacturers and armament makers. They also sold to the enemy. For a dollar is a dollar, whether it comes from Germany or from France. But they did well by Uncle Sam, too. For instance, they sold Uncle Sam 35 million pairs of hobnailed service shoes. There were four million soldiers, eight pairs and more to a soldier. My regiment during the war had only one pair to a soldier. Some of these shoes probably are still in existence. They were good shoes, but when the war was over, Uncle Sam has a matter of 25 million pairs left over, bought and paid for, profits recorded and pocketed. <clears throat> there was still lots of leather left, so the leather people sold your Uncle Sam hundreds of thousands of McClellan saddles for the cavalry. But there wasn't any American cavalry overseas. Somebody had to get rid of this leather, however. Somebody had to make a profit in it. So we had a lot of McClellan saddles, and we probably have those yet. 
Also, somebody had a lot of mosquito netting. They sold your Uncle Sam 20 million mosquito nets for the use of the soldiers overseas. I suppose the boys were expected to put it over them as they tried to sleep in muddy trenches, one hand scratching cooties on their backs and the other making passes at scurrying rats. Well, not one of those mosquito nets ever got to France. Anyhow, these thoughtful manufacturers wanted to make sure that no soldier would be without his mosquito net, so 40 million additional yards of mosquito netting were sold to Uncle Sam. There were pretty good profits in mosquito netting in those days. There were pretty good profits in mosquito netting in those days, even if there were no mosquitoes in France. I suppose if the war had lasted just a little longer, the enterprising mosquito netting manufacturers would have sold your Uncle Sam a couple of consignments of mosquitoes to plant in France so that more mosquito netting would be in order. Airplane and engine manufacturers felt they too should get their just profits out of this war. Why not? Everybody else was getting theirs. So one, so one billion, count them if you live long enough, was spent by Uncle Sam in building airplane engines that never left the crown. Not one plane or motor out of the billion dollars worth ordered ever got into a battle in France. Just the same manufacturers made their little profit of 30, 100, or perhaps 300%. And I did make a, an error when I read uh, some cost figures earlier. Those were billions not trillions so if I, said, if I said trillions back there that was incorrect it would be billions undershirts for soldiers cost 14 cents to make and uncle sam paid 30 cents to 40 cents each for them a nice little profit for the undershirt manufacturer yeah i can tell you that they cost a lot more than that now and the stocking manufacturer and the uniform manufacturers and the cap manufacturers and the steel helmet manufacturers all got theirs why, when the war was over some four million dollars for some four million sets of equipment, knapsacks and the things that go to fill them, crammed warehouses on this side, now they are being scrapped because the regulations have changed the contents. But the manufacturers collected their wartime profits on them and they will do it all over again the next time. There were lots of brilliant ideas for profit making during the war. One very versatile patriot sold Uncle Sam twelve dozen forty eight inch wrenches. Oh, they were very nice wrenches. The only trouble was that there was only one nut ever made that was large enough for these wrenches. That is the one that holds the turbines at Niagara Falls. Well, after Uncle Sam had bought them and the manufacturer had pocketed the profit, the wrenches were put on freight cars and shunted all around the United States in an effort to find a use for them. When the armistice was signed, it was indeed a sad blow to the wrench manufacturer. He was just about to make some nuts to fit the wrenches. Then he planned to sell these two to your Uncle Sam. Still another had the brilliant idea that colonels shouldn't ride in automobiles, nor should they even ride on horseback. One has probably seen a picture of Andy Jackson riding in a buckboard. Well, some 6,000 buckboards were sold to Uncle Sam for the use of colonels. Not one of them was used. But the buckboard manufacturer got his war profit. The shipbuilders felt they should come in on some of it too. They built a lot of ships that made a lot of profit. More than $3 billion worth. Some of the ships were alright, but $635 million worth of them were made of wood and wouldn't float. The seams opened up, and they sank. We paid for them though, and somebody pocketed the profits. 
It has been estimated by statisticians and economists and researchers that the war cost your Uncle Sam $52 billion. Of this sum, $39 billion was expended in the actual war itself. This expenditure yielded $16 billion in profits. That is how the 21,000 billionaires and millionaires got that way. This $16 billion in profits is not to be sneezed at. It is quite a tidy sum, and it went to a very few. <clears throat> the Senate Nye Committee probe of the munitions industry and its wartime profits, despite its sensational disclosures, hardly has scratched the surface. Even so, it has had some effect. The State Department has been studying, quote, for some time, end quote, methods of keeping out of war. The War Department suddenly decides it has a wonderful plan to spring. It's called the Department of Defense now. It was called the War Department back then. The administration names a committee with the War and Navy Departments ably represented under the chairmanship of a Wall Street speculator to limit profits in wartime. To what extent isn't suggested? Hmm. Possibly the profits of 300, 600, and 1,600 percent of those who turned blood into gold in the World War would be limited to some smaller figure. Apparently, however, the plan does not call for any limitation of losses, that is, the losses of those who fight the war. As far as I have been able to ascertain, there is nothing in the scheme to limit a soldier to the loss of but one eye, one arm, or to limit his wounds to one or two or three, or to limit the loss of life. There is nothing in this scheme, apparently, that says not more than 12% of a regiment shall be wounded in battle, or that not more than 7% in a division shall be killed. Of course, the committee cannot be bothered with such trifling matters. <clears throat> okay, I think I'm going to... That's the end of uh, the second chapter. So I think I'll leave off there. And he's talking about he's talking about various little scams that large companies uh, came up with to doing things like selling selling a, a whole bunch of products that never got used and never saw service. And if any anyone listening knows some more, can, uh, I'm sure you can can come up with some more uh, recent examples of that. Uh, feel free to go ahead and let me know. But um, I'm that's all I have for right now, and I'm going to go ahead and leave it there.